can turn with me to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. If you don't have your Bible, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible with you. Mark is the second book in your New Testament, the fifth chapter. Those are the big numbers. Little numbers are the verse numbers. I want to start by telling you a little bit about Kim. Kim's grandmother was wealthy, and her mother was immensely well-to-do. Her family was rife with sin, however, most obviously her mother's. From a very early age, Kim's mother would abuse her in various terrible ways. She would lock her in the closet for hours at a time often only opening the door to grab a wire hanger and beat her with it until it drew blood. Kim would often have to use the bathroom in this tiny closet because her mom would not open the door for hours and hours on end, sometimes not at all, forcing Kim to sleep in her own refuse throughout the night. Kim's mother was married to eight different men over the course of Kim's young life. Out of these eight men, some took advantage of her. If they didn't take advantage of her, they beat her. If they didn't beat her, they abused her emotionally. And if they didn't do any of those things, they just didn't recognize that she existed at all. As one can imagine, Kim did pretty poorly in school. But her mother's money insulated her from her bad grades. And Kim was a wildly attractive young woman, and so men began to take notice of her at a very young age, including some of the men that her mother married. Her first encounter with a man that wasn't forced upon her was at the age of 11. If you want to know what Kim's life was like, at the age of 12, she had to be rescued from a hotel room full of grown men by her brother. She was saved from a group of men in a hotel room by her brother, and that is a small picture of what the rest of her life was like. As she aged, she grew into popularity as a teenager. Her money and her beauty made her one of the most popular kids in school. The sort of social skills one needs to be able to navigate the social strata of high school, well, they're not common to drug users, of which she was the foremost. She spent all of her high school partying, using any kind of illicit substance under the sun, hooking up with men. As you can imagine, Kim's life was a spiritual and emotional disaster. She was a train wreck. But she kept the wheels of that train rolling pretty steadily until she turned 30. And she became pregnant with her first and only child. And it was a son. At the age of 31, she gave birth. And she raised him by herself. But perhaps the word raised isn't the right word for what happened there. Soon after conceiving, her drug and alcohol addiction went off the rails. As a mother, she had no example to look to for how to raise a child, so she did what everyone does. She merely mimicked what she saw her mother do. She would lock the boy in closets. She would corner him and beat him until she had no more energy left. She would curse the day that he was born, often lamenting the fact that she hadn't aborted him 
usually in the presence of his hearing. Although never married, men would frequent Kim's bed, often in exchange for money or drugs. At one point, Kim found herself homeless, with no one and nothing other than the boy. She and the boy moved back and forth between seedy motels when she could get enough money, and when she couldn't, they would live out of their car. Kim had no possessions other than a car and an electric stove, and Kim would use the electric stove to cook government food that she got for free, most notably Hamburger Helper. She would make a pot of Hamburger Helper in the morning and expect the boy to eat it throughout the rest of the day, perhaps into the night, as she often didn't come home. One evening, Kim burst through the door of one of her hotel rooms, screaming at the top of her lungs, crying uncontrollably, convulsing. She called the police, started screaming into the receiver, and then hung up the phone. She couldn't control herself. She was so distraught. She was hysterical. Well, the boy was in the room as this was happening, and he didn't understand any of it. But years later, he would find out that Kim had been accosted in the parking lot. The last vestiges of her dignity were stripped from her by a stranger in the night. Years later, Kim would tell the boy that that was the most unclean she had ever felt. And that's saying something. Her son grew into a teenager, and as a teenager, he hated her with every fiber of his being. The boy had become a teenager, and in that teenage path, he followed her. She had no money, she had no education, no opportunities, no family, no dignity, no faith, and now her son was going off the rails as well. She had no one and nothing other than the emotional and spiritual baggage that she carried around with her everywhere she went. Those who got to know her well enough thought that she might very well be insane. It wasn't long before Kim was diagnosed with cancer, cervical, uterine. Perhaps it was from the STDs that she carried. Perhaps it was the nearly 40 years of drug abuse that she endured. Perhaps it was the stress and anguish that she never was able to get rid of, that she carried around with her all the time. Or whatever it was, Kim was dying. I know this may be hard to hear, but this was her life. This is not made up. This is a real person. However hard this is for you to hear, imagine how hard it must have been to live through it. In the late stages of her cancer, Kim would lie with a colostomy bag attached to her side, her belly full of pills to kill the pain, her skin only barely draping over her bones as she wasted away. She was an unclean woman, physically, emotionally, spiritually, she spent the majority of her life being sinned against and sinning against other people, leading her to have no one and nothing as her life drew to a close. I tell you the story of Kim this morning because it very much reminds me of the story that we're going to read about today in Mark chapter 5. The story of the Gerasene demoniac is the story of a broken human being, unclean in every single way, untouchable and perceived by many, 
to be unsavable. Well, let's read about it together in Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told told it in the city and in the country. The people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had, possessed, who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Well, this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Our story begins with Jesus walking headlong into the land of the unclean. The text tells us that Jesus walked into the land of the Gerasenes. Unless you're familiar with ancient Israelite geography, you probably don't know what that means. Well, here's what it means. The land of the Gerasenes was a city that was located in the Decapolis. Decapolis is a Greek word. It means ten cities. And there were ten cities that were off to the east of the Jordan. And they were all predominantly Gentiles. Gentile is a word that is used often in the Bible to speak of those who do not belong to the people of God. Another way to think about it is a people who are unclean. Not unclean because they don't agree with these other people. They're unclean because they worship false gods. 
And usually because they worship false gods, that leads them to lead very unclean lives and to have very unclean practices. So for a first century Jew like Jesus, and not just any Jew, but a rabbi like Jesus, to walk into the land of the Gerasenes, to intentionally cross over, to cross the Sea of Galilee and on purpose go into the land of the Gentiles is unheard of. It's like a freshly bathed man wearing the finest clothes with the nicest cologne on, looking dapper and fresh, jumping headlong into a pile of manure. It's just, it's unheard of. How unclean is this land? Well, not only are there Gentiles, but the text also tells us that there are 2,000 pigs, more or less, in the near vicinity. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but Jews thought pigs were unclean because God said that they were unclean. It was unclean for Jews to be around pigs, to consume pigs. And if it's unclean to consume pigs, then obviously it's unclean to raise pigs. But they're in the land of the Gentiles, the land of the unclean. This is not Jesus' first encounter with the unclean, if you remember. If you're a visitor, you should know that in this church, the way that we preach is I don't just have an idea in my head and then go try to find support for it in the Bible somewhere, picking verses from anywhere I can find. We just walk through a book of the Bible together. We start at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and we preach all the way through so that we understand the entirety of the book of Mark. Well, as we've been studying the book of Mark together, we've seen that Jesus has encountered unclean everywhere he goes. Unclean spirits, unclean people. Do you guys remember when Jesus healed the leper? Do you remember what happened there? Jesus came into contact with a leper. And rather than getting leprosy, the leper became clean through contact with Jesus. Well, in today's account, another unclean man approaches Jesus. Far more unclean than the leper. This man is unclean in every single way. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, ceremonially, physically. Mentally and emotionally, the text tells us that he is basically out of his mind. The man is cutting himself with stones. Not only that, but he's crying out with utterings and groanings everywhere he goes. What's the most angry you've ever been? Or maybe not angry. What's the, what's the saddest you've ever been? The most grief you've ever experienced? You can imagine that time in your life. Perhaps you can remember that you were so angry, so sad, so broken, that you, you just couldn't even talk. You're just so overwhelmed with pain and suffering that you have nothing but guttural expressions. Like a young teenage girl who is so angry that she just throws her face in the pillow and screams into it. Or maybe not a teenage girl, maybe it's me too. Maybe I've done that. Well, that seems to be the perpetual state of this man. There is a storm that is waging within this man. And he's suffering so much that he can't even communicate. And he would rather feel the pain of cuts on his body than the pain that he's experiencing in soul and mind. Physically, he's unclean because he lives amongst the dead. 
The text tells us that the man had come from the tombs. Now, for a Jew to touch a dead body or to be around the dead was unthinkable. God had expressly forbidden it. To touch the dead made one unclean. Now, there's a spiritual significance here. Remember, everything in the Old Testament, whenever you see an Old Testament law that doesn't make sense to you, like don't mix fabrics, it's not because God doesn't want cotton and polyester to be next to each other. It's because it's supposed to point to a deeper spiritual reality. And there's certainly some of that going on here. But there's also practicality to God's command for them not to touch the dead or to be around the dead. Let me tell you an example from history. There was a doctor named Ignaz Samuelweis, and he was a physician in Vienna in the mid-1800s. He worked in the maternity unit there, and he was shocked after spending a couple months working to find that the death of the women who delivered in that maternity unit was five times higher than the death rate of any other hospital in the city, including where the midwives delivered babies. Five times. Why were so many women dying in this hospital? Well, he examined one theory, and then he examined another. None of them really panned out. Until finally one day, he connected the dots. You see, Ignaz taught in a training hospital where young doctors learned how to be doctors. And one of the ways that they learned was by practicing on cadavers. A dead body would be brought in, and they would cut it and move it and touch it and poke it and prod it. This is before gloves existed. This is before people understood what germs were. This is before hand washing. Think about that. There was a time where people didn't think that hand washing was necessary. And so what would happen is these young medical students, well, they would be touching dead bodies, working on cadavers, and then a woman would come in to give birth and they would rush in there and they would touch them with their unclean, unwashed hands. Transferring germs from the dead body to the living person, leading to death. You see here the danger of touching a dead body and then walking into a group of healthy people. So for this man to be living amongst the dead is to be about as unclean as possible, to say the least. We don't know for sure why the, man, why the man lived in the caves or in the tombs. But it's not really hard to imagine, is it? I mean, here we have a guy who is probably a massive human being because when he gets mad and he flies into a frenzy, he's strong enough to break chains. And guess what? He does often fly into fits of frenzy and rage where he breaks chains. He's so unwell that he slices himself with stones and walks around screaming and groaning all the time. It's not hard to imagine why people would run this guy out of town. He was in such a bad state, he couldn't stand to live amongst the dead, or better yet, the dead could not stand to have him live amongst them. And so they, driv they drove him out to the edge of the town to where the dead bodies are kept the tombs. Spiritually, this man is unclean as well. We know this because verse 2 tells us that he has an unclean spirit. Now, you may be wondering, what is an unclean spirit? Well, it's simply an evil spirit. A demon is the way that you'll see it other places in the Bible. But why does Mark use the term 
unclean spirit here? Why doesn't he say demon? Well, I think it's because for consistency's sake. You see, Jesus has crossed over and is going into an unclean land, surrounded by unclean animals, and he, contact, he makes contact with an unclean man who's possessed by an unclean spirit. I mean, if you are a Jew and you're reading this story, you begin to feel yourself becoming unclean as you imagine yourself in Jesus' shoes. It's, it's like a person who's watching arachnophobia who begins to feel spiders crawling on their neck and back. So here we have a mentally, emotionally, physically, ritually, spiritually unclean man. And you know what? <clears throat> He's rushing headlong towards Jesus. Now, before we take a look at their interaction, we should stop and just take a moment to consider this unclean man. Who among us would assume that this man could be saved? Which one of us, were we to see this kind of man out on the street, standing outside of a grocery store, would stop and take the time to share the gospel with him, to pray for him, to do something, anything, to try to save him from himself? How many of us would look at him with the eyes of Christ rather than through the eyes of the flesh? Now, I'm using we language, possessive plural, us, on purpose. Because I know all too well how I might respond in that situation. When Amber and I lived on the mission field, when we lived in a city called Yurimaguas, we used to have to go to the market to get our food every day. And there was a man who lived in the market, walked around it, And he was naked all the time. He would go around arguing with anyone and with no one in particular. And I saw him quite often. How many times do you think I stopped and talked to that man? How many times do you think I stopped and prayed with him? That I even considered him worthy of five minutes of my time as an image bearer of God? Not once. And that is to my shame. I never said it out loud. I never thought it explicitly. But in my mind, this man was an unreachable man. Even though he was oftentimes literally within my arm's reach. How many of us have looked at other people that way and simply written them off? How many of us have seen people that we said we thought were too far gone? that they couldn't be saved, even by Jesus. I know, our theology would never let us say that. No good Christian would ever say someone's too far gone for Jesus to save. But what I mean is practically, the way we interact with people, the way we treat people, how many of us have treated people and acted like certain people were beyond the reach and grace of God? But back to the story. The man in today's text isn't simply wandering around aimlessly. Jesus doesn't merely run across him in the market. Mark tells us that the man saw Jesus from a distance and ran towards him. And when he 
when he got to him, he collapsed on his knees at the feet of Jesus and began to beg for mercy. Why would a demon do that? Why would a demon not simply avoid Jesus? Why would he run and then fall at his feet prostrate begging for mercy? Well, as we've been studying the book of Mark together, it seems like the spiritual guard is up. It seems as if the entire spiritual realm of evil has been put on high alert because of Jesus' activities. There must have been a sense of impending doom amongst the powers and principalities. Everywhere that Jesus goes, he exerts his authority. He preaches with authority. He casts out demons with authority. He heals sicknesses with authority. He claims to be God, claims to be Lord of the Sabbath. Even though the disciples can't figure it out, the crowds can't figure it out, Jesus' own family can't figure it out, they don't know who Jesus is, the demons know. And they know exactly who Jesus is. And so as Jesus arrives in the land of the Gerasenes, this demon knows who Jesus is. In the ancient days, when massive nations like Babylon and Persia and Rome, when they would go around conquering massive swaths of the earth in their campaigns, sometimes small nations would hear of their coming. And in fear, they would send out a messenger, an ambassador, and they would say, Please have mercy on us. Don't kill us. Don't burn our city down. Don't rape our women. Have mercy on us. We'll do whatever you want. Just please don't come here and destroy us. Well, I think that that's what you see here today. The demon knows that the mighty one has arrived on the scene. And so he begs for mercy before it's too late. There's a couple of really interesting things we can learn about Jesus from today's text. One of them is his power. I'm catechizing patience right now, my oldest daughter. And we oftentimes talk about the attributes of God on the way to school, right? The other day she learned what omniscient is. She learned that omniscient means that God is all-knowing. But I don't want her to just know a word, right? I say, so what is omniscient? What does it mean that God is omniscient? What does it mean that he's all-knowing? And she says, well, God knows how the trees grow, and God knows how many hairs are on my head, and God knows what's in my heart, and God knows what I'm thinking. God knows everything. Yeah, that's right. That is what omniscience is. Well, I want us to take a moment to consider what it means that Jesus is all-powerful. I don't want us to just say those words. I want us to feel the weight of what it means. To start with, we could say this. There is no one and there is nothing outside the power and authority of Jesus Christ. No earthly power, no principality, no ruler, no king, no beast of the field, bird of the air, no government, no philosophy, no nation, no army, no church, nothing, not even you, are outside of the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus is supremely powerful. And with the flick of his pinky, he can extinguish the universe if he so desires. 
By the power of His might, Christ binds together every atom of every cell in the entirety of the expanse of the universe. And He doesn't even have to break a sweat to do it. He raises kings and then He crushes them if He wills. He raises mountains and then lays them waste if He so desires. He brings dead men back to life and he puts living men in their eternal graves. And you know what? The, ge- the demon that Jesus comes against in today's story, he knows that. The demon knows who Jesus is. The demon knows about the power of Christ. That's why in verse 7 he cries out, Please don't torment me. Now what's really noticeable here is that this is no run-of-the-mill unclean spirit. The text tells us, when he's asked to identify himself, that his name is Legion. Now, Legion was the term for a large number of Roman soldiers, somewhere between three and 6,000 in number. Now, we should not say that well, there were three to 6,000 demons in, in, in this man. The point is, there was a strong power in this man. The evil in this man was not slight. It was great. It was tremendous. So the demon that recognizes the power of Christ and then falls prostrate at his feet, recognizing his power, he's no wimp of a demon. He's not the demon that couldn't. He's not the black sheep demon. He's not the runt of the litter demon. What's really interesting here is that As Jesus confronts this demon, he doesn't appeal to some higher power. He's not a magician. He doesn't recite incantations. He doesn't appeal appeal to some power outside of himself. In the same way that he speaks to the wind and the waves and they submit and obey him, Jesus speaks to this demon and by the power of his word, he assumes control and exerts authority. This is the power of Christ. It's the same power that raises dead men from the grave. Friends, the demon is not the only one who is required to submit to King Jesus. Every single one of us will one day bow the knee to King Jesus and recognize his power and authority. Every single human being will beg Jesus for mercy as He judges us. For those who cry out to Him now, here while there's still time and opportunity, they will only know Jesus as Father and not as Judge. But for those who wait, there will be no mercy. It is appointed to man to live once, then die and face his Judge says the Bible. Does that seem harsh? Well, I don't think it should. We know that a a good judge judges things that are bad. He punishes the murderer, the rapist. But it also shouldn't seem harsh because even now, Jesus Christ is calling on everyone to repent of their sins and to turn to Him. When God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, that was His way of extending mercy to you. 
Yes, His judgment is harsh, harsh, but His love is great. And He's made a way for you to be free from His wrath. He's been so merciful and so kind. Perhaps the, the idea of submitting to anyone or submitting to anything just doesn't really strike you as something you want to do. Well, you should know that everyone has to submit to someone. Employees have to submit to their bosses. Children have to submit to their parents. Your boss has to submit to his boss. The governor has to submit to the president. The president has to submit to the checks and balances, and even really to the will of the people. We will all bow the knee to King Jesus one day. Some will bow as his loyal subjects, and they will serve him in his new kingdom. But others will bow the knee as conquered enemies. Much like the demon in today's text, who knows that the Son of God is a mighty king whose victory is guaranteed. And the question for you and for me is not whether or if we will bow the knee to Jesus' power, but only when. And I bet you think you still have time. The second thing we can learn about Jesus is this. He is supremely loving. Now, perhaps nothing immediately jumps out of the story as loving to you. But if you don't see the deep, deep love of Jesus in this story, I really think you're missing the point. You're missing something incredible. We should notice first that Jesus is not put off by this man. This man who is slicing himself with stones. This man who lives amongst the dead and who, in all likelihood, has not bathed in quite some time. As this man approaches Jesus, Jesus is not put off by him, this nightmare walking, this dumpster fire of a human being. A complete train wreck. But Jesus doesn't go around him. Jesus doesn't avoid him. This utterly broken and unclean man would cause most of us to cross the street if we saw him walking on the same side of the sidewalk as us. We shouldn't deny it. Just, we just accept it. It's true. Some of us won't even drive on certain sides of the town that we live in because we're afraid of coming into contact with undesirables. But not Jesus. Some of us won't shop at certain grocery stores because we'll come into contact with people that we think are less desirable. Publix is greater than hometown market. But not Jesus. People clear a path for lepers, for the insane, for the demon-possessed, but not Jesus. I remember the first time I was invited to preach in a church after I got saved. I was a new Christian. I hadn't been walking with the Lord but for five or six months. And I wore a dicky suit with a tank top. My tattoos were showing. I had a gold grill in my mouth. I have pictures. And I remember walking into a church of very good, middle-class Christian people in Decatur, Alabama. And it killed me that when I walked into the room, women grabbed their purses and clutch them tight by their side. But Jesus doesn't do that. 
Jesus sees beneath the exterior. He sees beyond the effects of sin. When Jesus looks at this man, body full of cuts, eyes full of anguish and grief, he doesn't merely see a broken man. He doesn't merely see what this image bearer of God has become. He also sees what the man is capable of becoming and what he was meant to be. Many of us can't look past the way the image of God has been broken in people, but Jesus can, and Jesus does. If he didn't, none of us would be saved. And not only is Jesus the designer of the image of God, but he's also the redeemer of the image of God. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus Christ does. He takes the broken and the filthy and the worthless and the low and the useless, the undesirable, and he takes it and he makes it new. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you don't think that you are undesirable or that you're dirty, that you don't need to be clean and made new, you don't have access to that mercy because Jesus only comes to save those kinds of people. Is that how we look at people? Do we look at people and see beyond the effects of sin? I think about in the life of this own church. I, I think about in the, the things that are going on in the life of our church. I think about Will, our pastoral intern. When I look at Will, I don't just see a young man who has a bunch of things that he needs to change in order to become a pastor. I do see some of those things, but I try to look beyond that. And I try to look at the man that Will will be in 10 years from now as he pastors some church faithfully. I try to look at what Christ can do in young Will's life. As I disciple men, I don't merely look at their faults and their spiritual immaturity, although I do see it. I try to look at what kind of men Christ can turn them into in 2, 5, 10 years. What they can become by the power of Christ. My mother-in-law is here today. She knew me 13 years ago. She can testify and say amen to what Christ can do to a young man in a decade. I think of Phil, who when I first met him, was so lost in sin. He wore a, a fedora hat, which there's nothing wrong with that, maybe. A black trench coat, he had long hair, he was angry all the time, only watched horror movies and listened to death metal. He was depressed, suicidal, severely addicted to pornography. He was a complete disaster. He was mentally, physically, spiritually unclean. Well, I shared the gospel with Phil, and he got saved. And then I discipled Phil, and it was very hard. But 12 years later, I look at Phil, and I see a completely different man. I see what the power of Christ is in Phil. What if I would have never looked past the trench coat? What if I never would have looked past the long hair, the angry demeanor? What if I just would have seen what was on the exterior? Look at verse 15 with me. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. You see that? It's a complete transformation. He's clothed. He's calm. He's in his right mind. 
which leads to the second aspect of the love of Christ that we see in today's text. And this may be the most important one. The love of Christ changes us. How do you think about love? It's not uncommon for us to think about love like this. Love accepts me exactly the way that I am. Well, I don't think that's true. We think that love would never ask us to change. But you know that that's not true. It's a very romantic idea. But we don't live our lives like that. We love our children, but we certainly try to change them. Not because we hate them or because we're toddler bigots, but because we love them, we want them to change. Think about marriage. Whether you've been married for 10 minutes or 20 years, you know that there are some things about your spouse that you kind of have to absorb, you know? The toilet seat patterns or irregular laundry schedules, right? But there are other things that you say, I love you, and I'm not going to let you keep doing that. I'm going to help you be better. I'm going to try to help you change that. Not because we hate our spouses, but because we love them. Love always demands change. Consider the way that Jesus loves the man in today's story. He doesn't simply leave the man as he finds him. He changes him. Now, he did love the man as he was, to be sure, But the way that Jesus' love is actively shown is the way in which his love changes the man. It transforms him. It renews him. A rebirth, one might say. And the same is true of us. Now, I don't know how you see yourself, but I can tell you how Jesus sees you, and that is very much in need of change. Perhaps you're not cutting yourselves with rocks in a shanty house that you've built amongst dead people in a tomb. But that doesn't mean that you don't need to be changed. If you don't believe me, just ask some people that know you. Ask your friends. Ask your husband. Ask your wife. Ask fellow church members. Maybe don't do that. I've had a good day. Perhaps you're unkind. Or maybe you're impatient. Maybe you're cruel or mean or selfish. Now, these are all more polite sins. Maybe there's something that nobody knows about that Jesus needs to change. Or maybe you've mustered enough self-discipline to be a moral exemplar. You've got it under control. You don't do anything bad. You do everything right. Well, people who think that they've gotten their morality under control usually suffer from a much deeper set of sins. Self-righteousness. Perhaps you see yourself as better than others because you don't do these things or you do do those things. Maybe you see yourself as better than people because you don't have the same sort of addictions and sin patterns in your life that they have. Perhaps you think that God is happy with you because of how well you obey the rules. Well, if that's the case, you are probably worse off than the demoniac in today's text. Because at least the man with the demons cutting himself with stones, living with dead people, knows 
how desperate his situation is. You may not realize that you too are dead in sin until it's too late. No matter what sin issue you're dealing with, the love of Jesus compels you to change. And you know what? Here's the really incredible thing. We wouldn't want it any other way. I promise you, we would not want it any other way. Imagine Jesus encountering this poor man who's desperate and broken and unclean just to leave him as he finds him. What kind of love is that? What kind of love would that be from a God who claims to love us? The evil inside this man is literally destroying him. Would it be loving of Jesus to just say, ah, man, you're cool just the way you are, or to transform him and to restore him? Well, I think you know the answer to that. But maybe, just maybe, you don't think that you have the same kind of evil in you that this man had in him. Well, I think the gospel of Jesus Christ says otherwise. See, here's the thing. Jesus did not come to save you from poverty. Jesus did not come to save you from a lack of education. Jesus did not come to save you from an oppressive government. Jesus did not come to save you from low self-esteem. Jesus came to save you from your sin, from the evil of your heart, from the ways that you rebel against the God of the universe. That's what the gospel says. Now, you can disagree with that gospel, but that is the gospel. The truth is we all carry around in us the same kind of evil that resides in the man from today's text. The kind of evil that will lead us to be judged by a holy and just God. But the love of Christ can save us from that judgment. In the gospel, Christ takes the punishment for our sins and he gives us his righteousness in exchange. We see an image of that in today's text as the evil is taken out of this man and cast onto the pigs. And it is here that I think we see the final aspect of Jesus' love. It's obvious from this text that Jesus loves humans in a way that he does not love the rest of creation. Jesus is perfectly content to drive the demons out of a human being into 2,000 pigs, leading them to go off of a cliff and die it is apparent that Jesus is willing to sacrifice the lives of thousands of pigs in order to save the life of one human being. Do you guys remember Harambe? Harambe the gorilla, 2016, tough year. Harambe was a gorilla from the Cincinnati Zoo. A boy fell in his cage. Harambe snatched him up. Soon after, the zookeeper shot Harambe and killed him. Surprisingly, there was an immense social media outrage after that. Imagine, outrage on social media. Crazy. And the source of that outrage was that, how dare you kill a gorilla to save the life of a boy? 
You see, according to the evolutionary worldview, we are all just primates. And who are you to say that that boy's life is more valuable than a gorilla's life? Well, I don't know who I am, but I know for a fact that God thinks that human beings' lives have more value than gorilla lives. I preached a sermon on disability at my last church and how God finds value in the life of people, even the disabled. And I used Harambe as an example there. And I said, not only would God be pleased to kill one gorilla to save the life of one human, God would be pleased to kill 10,000 gorillas to save the life of one human being. And in the feedback that I got, one brother told me, Sean, <clears throat> I get your point, man, and I think I agree with you, but it's just over the top. It's over the top. We don't 10,000 gorillas? I don't know, man. That's just that's a bit much, don't you think? No. No, I don't think so. Not only would God kill 10,000 gorillas or 2,000 pigs or 50,000 flies or any other living creature on this earth to save the life of one human being, he would do all that to save the life of one human being with a disability, with Down syndrome, or the life of a human being who's possessed by a demon. <coughs> These things don't change the value of a human life. If a human is in a woman's belly, it still has value in life and worth and dignity as an image bearer of God. If a person has a disability, they still have value, dignity, and worth as an image bearer of God. If a person is oppressed by an unclean spirit, if they're unclean physically, spiritually, emotionally, they still have value, dignity, and worth as image bearers of God. That's why we go preach in the jail. No matter what they've done, it doesn't matter. They still deserve to be seen as image bearers of God. But here's the really incredible thing. Jesus wasn't just willing to sacrifice the life of pigs to save this man. Jesus gave his own life to save sinners like you and me who are infinitely more unclean than those pigs. What greater love has any man than this than to lay down his life for a friend? But when Christ dies for us, he doesn't merely lay down his life for a friend. He lays down his life for his enemies, for the unclean, for sinners like you and like me. Consider this love of Jesus and do not settle for another love. Do not settle for a lesser understanding of love. Some so-called Christians will tell you that Jesus isn't angry about sin, that he doesn't want to change you in any way, that he's not going to punish sin and rebellion. It's not true. And not only is it not true, it's unloving. They think that they're preaching love, but they're actually preaching hate. Love tells us the truth about God and how holy He is and us and how sinful we are and His Son, Jesus Christ, and what He's done to fix that situation. That is love. And it is hate to say that we don't need to be changed because that will lead to our destruction, not our salvation. You see, if we say that God isn't going to judge sin, we're wrong because God has already judged sin. He judged it when he poured the penalty of his wrath out on his son Jesus' head on the cross. And every sin that wasn't paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross will be paid for in hell. 
any understanding of the love of Christ that doesn't rid us of our evil, that doesn't conform us to the image of His Son in holiness, is a non-Christian understanding of love. And it doesn't really feel like love at all. Well, last week's sermon ended with a question. Who is this man? Well, in this week's text, we see quite clearly the demon says it. He's the son of the Most High God. But if you're looking for further proof, look at verse 19. Jesus, speaking to the man, says, And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord, the Lord, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So Jesus redeems this man. And then he says, Go and tell everyone what God has done for you. And then verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. Who is this man who claims to be able to forgive sins, who rids people of illness and disease, who casts out demons and controls the waves? He is the Lord and he is God. If Jesus, if the Son of God has had mercy on you the same way that he had power and mercy on this demoniac, then your response should be the same as his. This demoniac goes up to Jesus and says, can I go with you? Can I be a disciple? And Jesus says, no, you can't go with me. He was getting kicked out of the land, but he told the man to stay, that the man might be a witness amongst the Gentiles. And if Christ has saved you, if he's rid you of all your impurities, if he's taken the unclean and made it clean in your life, you should do the same thing. Going around, proclaiming all that the Lord, Jesus Christ, has done for you. And that is every single one of our jobs as followers of Jesus Christ. Do you remember the story from the beginning of the sermon? The story of Kim and the boy? Well, I know that story so well because I am that boy and Kim was my mother. I don't know if Kim ever came to know Christ. But I know that towards the end of her life, she said that she wanted to. And that, that's hard to reconcile. But this story comforts me. It reminds me that no one, no one, not me, not you, not the demoniac, not Kim, no one is beyond the reach of our all-powerful, all-loving Savior, Jesus Christ, because he is mighty to save. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for who you are and for what you've done, and for the way that you have rescued us. We pray that you would allow us as a church to be faithful messengers of this redemption. We pray that you would help us to believe in the power and love of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you would help us to be faithful in proclaiming it anywhere and everywhere we go, that your Son might be lifted up high and glorified, and that sinners might be saved. 
And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.